Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wrap, brought to you by Michigan Medicine Headlines. I'm Dan Elman with the Department of Communication. And I'm Bailey Merzik, also with the Department of Communication. Today, we're going to chat with Chief Medical Officer Dr. Jeff Desmond and allow him to reflect on a lengthy career before he retires at the end of 2022. Now, before we meet with Dr. Desmond, be sure you go back and reflect on any episodes of The Wrap you may have missed. You can find the shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast hosting platform. New shows debut weekly and can always be found on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel and as part of the headlines we can review. All right, with that, let's bring in Dr. Jeff Desmond, who has served as Chief Medical Officer at U of M Health since 2016. Dr. Desmond, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right, well, first, can you talk a bit about your career here at Michigan Medicine, sort of how it started, the different roles you've held, and how you've gotten to where you are today? Yeah, uh, great question. Sometimes I ask myself that uh, on a daily basis, but um, I've been here for a long time. So I came here as a faculty member in 1993. And, you know, one of the things I'll reflect on is just the huge opportunity that this has been both um you know, professionally in emergency medicine for me, uh, as well as in, in an administrative role, which ultimately, you know, landed the last seven years as the chief medical officer. But um, when I joined the faculty, um, one of the early faculty members in the division of emergency medicine, there was no department of emergency medicine. Um, we were a division within surgery. And um, Bill Barzin, who was uh, the first division head and became the first chair, I was really brought here to bring the specialty of emergency medicine to uh, the University of Michigan Health System. So we started out as a, a division in surgery uh, and a small group of faculty. Uh, and then over the years, uh, gradually grew and um, became a, you know, one of the um, next academic departments. So we became a full academic department here, um, managed the operation of both the adult uh, emergency department. Uh, we had a a children's emergency department that was adjacent for a while that um, uh, started as a children's walk-in, became a children's emergency department. And then with the children's hospital, we really expanded children's emergency services uh, um, to be uh, what it is today. And then just tremendous growth in uh, emergency medicine and um, across the health system. And also growth in the other missions, our research and um, uh, teaching missions. So, you know, we're uh, one of the highest, if not the highest funded um, research uh, department in emergency medicine, academic department in emergency medicine across the country, um, and also have uh, a, a joint residency program in uh, emergency medicine with uh, St. Joe's in Ann Arbor, um, and then a number of fellowships, including pediatric emergency medicine, uh, EMS, um, ultrasound, uh, and, and um, uh, critical care. So it, it's really been an honor and a very unique career experience to be able to come to an institution that has the resources, the, the um, quality and, and the stature of Michigan um, and be able to bring a specialty here and be part of that journey of growing, you know, both the specialty um, and the, the research and education missions, uh, the clinical care specialty, the research and education missions um, for the institution. So, you know, kind of ended up being the right person in the right place at the right time to have that opportunity. Um, but it's really been great. And I've been honored to be able to play even a small part in that. 
Yeah, so a lot of different um, things happening during your time here. So um, while you've been here, how has medicine and the way it's been carried out changed over the years? Yeah, so when you've been here almost 30 years, uh, it has changed. It's changed a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I think there's some some very obvious things that people would think of. I mean, first of all, there's just been the advancement of the science of medicine, which is, you know, increasing at an ever increasing pace. Um, and so the the scope of knowledge, um, the the level of understanding and the the expansion of the scientific understanding of disease and the treatments that we have for it has just phenomenally expanded in the last 30 years. You know, we have people that get treatments at home or, or you know, live with devices at home that they, we couldn't even deliver in the hospital 30 years ago. So, so that level of, of complexity of care that has um, evolved from the advancement of the science and understanding of disease and the development of treatments, really, I think that's one of the fundamental things um, has been that is that we increasingly care for increasingly complex um, patients. And, and that, that, you know, there's people alive with uh, conditions now that are chronic conditions that they never would have survived even 30 years ago. So, so that's, that's remarkable, I think, in and of itself. Like other parts of, uh, I think, society in the world, the, the boom and the expansion of information uh, has been one of the other things that's just been, uh, you know, almost impossible to keep up with in medicine. And, you know, uh, the availability of information, both uh, general information, the way to access that. I mean, you know, you can think about it, you can even see in the in the shelves behind me, you know, textbooks, which are kind of, you know, a thing of the very past right now. Um, and the accessibility of information um, is just remarkably different. The electronic health record uh, and the um, the availability of information that that supplies uh, that that provides for us has been a, a phenomenal um, change. And and while I think you know some people can argue that it's been a burden and and has been challenging, um, I think sometimes we forget how difficult it was to access information prior to that. You know, we kind of joke around. One of the early things that we did in the emergency department that we thought was an advance was that we would, as soon as the patient registered, we would call down to medical records to get their charts delivered, their paper charts brought up on a cart by a person to the emergency department so that if we needed them, we could look through their past history and see what it has. So, you know, the ability to um, manage all that electronically is remarkably different also has new and different challenges to it, right? And the ability to um, assimilate and manage that information. I'm not sure our, our tools and our um, capacity to manage information has uh, matured at the same rate as the growth of information. So I think that's you know um, uh, one of the particular challenges. And then I think the growth of the health system uh, and our increasing role that we play across the state um, uh, has obviously expanded, um, you know, the capacity constraints that we uh, feel here and the operational challenges. You know, again, I'll reflect when I was an early FAG member, we used to have meetings up on some of the floors because we had floors that were closed and were being used as administrative offices, um, you know, back in the 90s. 
Uh, and that was really driven by a huge, you know, um, transition of inpatient care to outpatient care, which took place across the uh, across the nation in in healthcare. Um, and now our ability to grow and and expand. I mean, we use every, you know, as people know, we're, we're challenged with capacity both on the inpatient side um, in our amatory care clinics due to um, uh, you know increasing demand. Uh, and the demand really comes from the quality of the care that we can provide and the expertise. Um, I think the, the compassion um, and, uh, and the skills of our providers, uh, I really think that is, um, that is our greatest asset. Um, and, and we really, uh, you know, as, from an administrative perspective, really need to do everything we can to um, allow that asset to be both used as as efficiently and effectively as it can be, and also to to provide that access to people across the state. So, like you know, I think it's almost everything has changed, and then you know nothing's changed because <laughs> it's still it's still uh, that interaction between a provider and the patient, um, the development of that trust, the empathy the care that we provide, that that is the foundation of what we do. Um, and that is the value uh, that exists in healthcare. Uh, the rest of it has become incredibly complex around that. But but that is, the I think, the enduring value um, in healthcare. And that, that's why it's been a huge honor to be a um, provider and a physician in a system like Michigan that values uh, that and, and really has tried to keep that at the forefront of the decisions that we make. Yeah, I think that's essential that, you know, it, it's been that way for 30 years. It'll be that way for the next 30 years, right? It's no matter how much technology changes, it's that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the patients, with family members, visitors, things like that, that really drive healthcare. Sometimes technology makes that easier. Sometimes it makes it not so easy, but I think uh, I think we have to accept that that we're, we're, we're in a state now where we're never going to be able to manage that without technology. So it's, it's, it's learning how to, you know, both um, from the provider side, learning how to use that well, and also from the system side, learning what really is effective and, and how to manage that um, to, to better support our, our providers and our patients. Yeah. So you've touched a little bit on your specialty, which is emergency medicine. And I want to dive into that for just a couple minutes. Sometimes that's seen as sort of a glamorous role, I think, with the way it's portrayed in the media, right? And on TV and movies. Can you talk a little bit about the reality of emergency medicine? What would you say are some of the biggest misperceptions around it? Everything you think it is. It is just glamour all the time. It's action. <laughs> it is, uh, you know. You got TV so... cameras in your face all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so obviously, you know, so one, I've never watched ER. So I think ER was probably uh, like one of the things that really brought that uh, kind of perception to light, I think, in the public. Um, and they certainly played on, on that. But I, I've never really watched the show, so I can't really comment on that. But what I can say is, um, is uh, I think there's a there is a perception that it is. Um, incredibly stressful that every moment is an emergency. Um, and the reality is that there's a lot of uh, diversity to the patients that we see in the emergency department. There are uh, there are things that are truly life-threatening uh, where decisions in a second make a difference. Um, 
between you know life and limb and and th those those situations exist there's a lot of of more routine care there's a lot of um you know there's a lot more uh um chronic not chronic care management but but chronic conditions acute exacerbations of chronic conditions that are managed in the emergency department um and so there's a lot that is not the the moment by moment decision making the thing that's the same across all those is is really the role of the emergency providers to gather information process that information and in a timely fashion whether it is something that matters in seconds or minutes or something that you know really you're going to decide in in uh, over the course of your shift um but to process that information and make decisions and then um move on with that and and i think that's the the part of emergency medicine that uh, has stayed the same um you know there's been a shift in the type of patients that come to emergency departments across the country it's it's less and less injury um and uh, uh trauma related um and that has to do with uh improvements in automobile uh safety uh, and other safety devices and things like that and more and more medical things that come to emergency departments which is really related to the complexity of patients that exist um, in our communities. So we know you've also focused a lot on safety and quality during your time here. So can you share some of the highlights or biggest accomplishments that you have um, seen in that area? Yeah. Um, so that's a that, that's kind of a, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, and and the the reason that it's hard is because I think some of the most foundational things that have happened around quality and safety. Um, are not maybe the interventions that we've made, but the advancement of the science of safety and understanding of quality and how to drive change um, in an organization and the some of the structural things that that people may not necessarily appreciate or or see behind the scenes that have allowed us to continue to improve. So we, we've certainly seen dramatic improvements um, over time in healthcare acquired conditions like like uh, catheter-associated uh, or central line-associated bloodstream infections, catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Those are things we still work on. And we're still not um, complacent or satisfied with our performance. And with the pandemic, we've seen a, a little, uh, not a little bit, we've seen some resurgence of those things. But if you look back to where we were years ago, I think there's a couple notable things. One, I think we've accepted that a drive towards zero harm is possible and is actually an obligation for us. So I think that's a big shift that's taken place over my career and, and thinking about quality and safety is that we can drive and focus and, um, you know, someday hopefully achieve zero harm. We've not done it yet, but we've, we've dramatically improved things, safety in the operating room, you know, uh, and, and a number of things across the organization. So, so I think those things, um, uh, uh, are important. And the fact that we can drive uh, um, towards, towards zero harm, still have, uh, still have room to go. Yeah, and so what, you know, one thing I would say is, is, you know, one of the things that, well, the thing I think that got me interested and helped for my drive in administrative issues really has been the idea that, you know, I could be the best emergency physician I could be, and I could, do a phenomenal job of caring for 
those patients that I saw on my shift and and have that impact and and you know I've never gone back to like calculate how many patients I've seen in over 30 years but it's a lot um but it occurred to me you know at one point when we were working on system issues and flow issues in the emergency department that if you're able to influence the system and if you're able to make the best thing for the patients the easiest thing for our providers to do the impact that you could have across patients is going to be much broader than than even if you were the best uh, emergency physician or surgeon or pediatrician or psychiatrist or whatever else in the organization. And, and so that idea of like, how do you improve the system so that we provide better care to more patients, that, that's really been the fundamental driver of, of why I've pursued, you know, trying to solve problems around safety and quality, first in the emergency department and operational issues, uh, and then um, realizing that many of those issues are issues that either exist or are systemic in the hospital and trying to work on those and create structures and systems that help solve those issues and, and, and create sustainable solutions so that you can have that broader impact um, over time. And, and one of the things that we've, that we've done that, that you know, uh, I think has been fairly unique and, and has turned out to be interestingly valued by people is, you know, one of the things that we were thinking about is, is how do we recognize performance around safety? Um, and so Marge Calarco was the chief nursing executive at the time, and I was the chief medical officer. And, and we really came up with this concept of the 365 days of safety award to really try to drive a couple things. One was the focus on safety. Um, but also the focus on performance. It was not just you know a month of safety. It was not just achieving something that we started an initiative. It was really to recognize that if you could prevent a safety event uh, that you are working on on your unit for greater than a year, 365 days, then that really speaks to hardwiring things. It speaks to the sustainment. It speaks to the, the breadth of the impact. And it speaks to the fact that this is not just, you know, something that's going to fade away. Um, and so we, we started that uh, and uh, really started recognizing units that had achieved um, 365 days of some of the, the healthcare acquired conditions that we track, uh, CLABSI, CAUTI, falls with injury, pressure ulcers. Um, we started uh, also early on in our hand hygiene journey, recognizing hand hygiene. Um, and uh, I think the units have really appreciated it. Uh, we've had some units that have had multiple years of preventing safety events. Um, and so I think it's been a great way to elevate the conversation, a great way to recognize people, um, uh, and uh, a great way to kind of focus on what, what that what is of real value, which is that sustained performance in our safety efforts. Yeah, and I think that that also points to the importance of teamwork, right? I mean, you like you said, you could be the best doctor that you can possibly be, but if you don't have the people around you that are also looking out for this and have also made safety a priority, then those things might still happen, right? Yeah, it's a great point. And we say that at every one of our 365-day safety award events is that what we're really there for is to recognize the teamwork and the effort that it took to make this happen, because it doesn't happen because you have one really good nurse or one really good 
um, you know, patient care assistant or, or one really good respiratory therapist or one really good doctor. Um, it is the coordination of that care and communication and mutual respect across the teams that allow people to perform at those high levels and, and achieve those um, persistent uh, prevention of safety events. So, so I think it's a great point, Dan. I think it is really the teamwork that drives that. And, and we've tried to recognize that when we go up and, and provide the awards. Absolutely. All right. So talking about teamwork, obviously the pandemic for the past two and a half years has been a challenge for everyone in healthcare. What has it been like from your perspective as a chief medical officer, helping the organization sort of navigate its response to COVID-19? Yeah, again, you know, a very unique opportunity to, um, to be in a leadership role during that time. And, you know, the thing that I would reflect on the most is the evolution of it. Um, because the problems that we were trying to solve and, and we did the best we could and we made the best decisions we had with the best information um, at the time, uh, you could probably look back and say that maybe some of those weren't exactly right. But the interesting thing about it was, and one of the things to consider is that there was no science. This was a new disease. We had no data around it. Um, and so we were you know, trying to gather information, trying to understand the science while we were trying to make the best decisions possible to manage the organization. And, and I think that's true across the country um, and, and true uh, across um, decisions that were made. Uh, you know, it's kind of easy to look back and say, wow, knowing what we know now, you know, maybe we should have done things differently. Um, but, but I think in the, uh, you know, during the moment, um, we were, gathering people together. We were getting the best information that we could, and we were trying to think long-term about the decision that we were making to make the best decisions um, for the institution. I think it was a really um, challenging time uh, for us as an organization. Uh, and, and I think one of the amazing things that came out of that was the ability of people to pull together, um, to collaborate, to really you know, pitch in and, and there wasn't a person or a part of the organization that if we asked for help or ideas or effort or participation that, you know, didn't say yes wholeheartedly and jump in with both feet. Um, and that's true across job families, across administrative structures, across all parts of the organization. I think the hard part of that, though, is it was incredibly exhausting. It was exhausting for leaders. It was more exhausting for our frontline staff. Um, and I think what was particularly exhausting was the uncertainty and uncertainty uh, around the disease, uncertainty what the trajectory was, uncertainty around risk, the risk of infection, both uh, um, to yourselves, the individuals, to your families, to our patients, uh, and then how best to manage that risk. Um, so, so I think that was really, uh, exhausting. And then, you know, it seemed like every time we were getting a break, then it would come back again and we would have another series of challenges to face. I will say one thing that encouraged me through all that though, is at every turn, I think we learned from the decisions that we made previously. We, we captured that institutional knowledge. We were, we tried to be intentional and thoughtful about what have we learned that will make us a better organization and help us make better decisions going forward? And so, um, you know, while it's 
feels, I think, to many like it's taking us a long time to come out of the pandemic. I think that, uh, you know, whenever, you know, whenever COVID is over, <laughs> if it's ever over, I think we'll look back and, and we'll be surprised at how many things we did during that period of time or subsequent to that um, helped strengthen us as an organization and, and really um, will help us move forward. You know, I, I think the other thing that, uh, you know, the society has changed around us during the time of the pandemic. And, and you know, one thing I, I'll comment on is I think the, the level of incivility and the seeming lack of, of uh, inhibition about people sharing their perspectives or their, you know, around and being uncivil I think is it's different now than it was prior to the pandemic. And, and we see that in, you know, increased workplace violence concerns in our organization. We're trying to do many things to address that. But but I think that's one of the things that's fundamentally changed in our society. Um, I hope that we can change back to a more respectful, civil um, uh, society. But I, I think that's also weighs on us um, as providers and as um members of our healthcare system, because we certainly feel that across the health system. So using everything you've learned during the pandemic or just anything else you've learned throughout your time here, do you have any advice for aspiring leaders at Michigan Medicine? Yeah, you know, the thing I think I would say um, is that leadership is a journey and people that aspire to leadership positions or find themselves in leadership positions, I think need to understand that. I think they need to also know that it is a skill that can be developed. Um, and I would ask them to really be intentional about trying to develop their leadership skills to best serve the groups that they are um, leading or have been asked to lead. Uh, I think, you know, Oftentimes, what makes you successful in one role or successful at one level of the organization aren't necessarily the skills and the approaches that will make you successful at the next level. So at every juncture of, I think, increased leadership, you need to reflect on, on what it is that you do that made you successful there. And are those the right things? Is that the right uh, approach to be taking at that next level of leadership and be very intentional um, about how you uh, how you show up as a leader and um, how you continue to develop your leadership skills. There's We've got lots of resources across the university and across the health system uh, for people to tap into. But I think the, the most important message that I would give people is I think the intentionality to that and that it takes work. It's not, I think sometimes people look at this and say, oh, they're a natural born leader. And I think there is that there is some of that, that people have a, there are some um, traits or competencies that uh, allow you to potentially um, be more natural at that. But I think anybody who has been a really successful leader um, has had some intentionality to their leadership development and their thoughts around how they um, how they want to lead and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Desmond, for taking some time to reflect on your career here. Now, before you ride off into the sunset, we do have just a few more questions for you as part of the lightning round when we ask our guests four quick fire questions. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. First question, what is the first thing you plan to do when you retire? Well, the first thing I plan to do when I retire is uh, I'm traveling to South Africa because uh, my son has, uh, one of my, my oldest son has married a woman from South Africa and we are going there to celebrate their wedding. So that'll be, that'll be the first thing. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, all right. What will you miss most about Michigan medicine? Uh, I think the thing I will miss the most, um, and again, you know, this is like that leadership intentionality question a little bit, um, is the people, the people and the caliber of people that work here. Um, it's an incredible opportunity and an honor to be able to work with people that have a level of expertise, motivation, dedication um, that we see across our staff and, and our faculty and, and everyone here at Michigan Medicine. So, you know, I think anything that I have been successful in has been because we've been, we've had tremendous teamwork and effort from others. Uh, and so that's the part that I'll, I'll miss. One of the things I've thought about is like, what, what are those things you do to maintain some of those connections and, and how do you fulfill that kind of going forward? And so I'm thinking about that as I retire. So since you are probably very familiar with the city of Ann Arbor, what is your favorite Ann Arbor restaurant? Favorite Ann Arbor restaurant, Spencer. That didn't take long to think of it, huh? <laughs> All right, the holidays are coming up. Do you have any fun family traditions? Um, fun family, like, <laughs> well, I mean, I think we do the, the typical uh, Things. One of the things I do is I like to cook. I cook the turkey. So, um, and and uh, and and we have turkey for both Thanksgiving and Christmas, as I think many families do. Uh, and so that's one thing I always uh, look forward to doing. Um, that. And then I guess the other thing that might be a little novel is, for some reason, this came from my family. So I grew up in Nebraska, nowhere near the ocean, um, but we have oyster stuffing with our turkeys at. Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas as a as a side, and it started I think with my grandfather who always liked seafood, and and so my grandparents would have you have regular stuffing, and then we would always have a big bowl of oyster stuffing. And if you've never had it, it's phenomenal. So we make oyster stuffing at both Thanksgiving and Christmas. Wow, wow, those were really good answers. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Desmond, and. We want to wish you the best of luck in your retirement. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Dr. Desmond for joining us recently as he prepares for his retirement from Michigan Medicine. In addition to today's podcast episode, be sure you check out headlines later this week for other featured stories, including a look back at some of the high reliability work that has taken place throughout 2022 and a glimpse of some of the holiday parties taking place at Mott. Find all that and more at mmheadlines.org. All right, it's time for the weekly trivia contest. This week's question is, who will serve as interim chief medical officer for U of M Health once Dr. Desmond retires? Once again, who will serve as interim chief medical officer for U of M Health once Dr. Desmond retires? You can find the answer on headlines and once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for the chance to win a prize. 
And that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks again to Dr. Desmond for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners and viewers for everything you do for patients, families, and each other. We'll see you next week.